0: it's nine o'clock we'll we'll stay faithful to the routine so as I think you know a couple of weeks we're moving into the back and uh we'll uh we'll be able to enjoy that a little bit more so morning oh yeah I thought about our whole conversation and that that is a wonderful book wonderful wonderful book To need more, I'll stand closer. Yeah. Well, he 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 chronicles uh, that pretty well. He, he, uh, yeah. There we go. Check check Is that Mo Beta. Good. Yeah. Just let me know. So. But uh, let's go ahead and pray. So, Father, we come before you and. Just find ourselves once again gathering as your people and I pray with the desire to just honor you with our hearts and our minds and our words and our actions and Lord, to just let your word um, just fall upon us, to fill us and to teach us and to just move us to look up To see You on Your throne, looking, as the Scriptures say, upon Your people especially. And Lord, we just praise You for this. We pray that this study would be pleasing to You. And Lord, that we would just again honor You and exalt You, for You are so worthy of all that we can do. And Lord, we just lift all these things up in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to carry on um, again as we work our way kind of down to the bottom of Romans 1 and on out into Romans 2 and 3. A, really, because I believe that what you see from Romans 1 as Paul lays this foundation of the, the really the condemnation on humanity. And then he begins to really get very selective to various constituencies in Romans 2 and 3a uh, who are usually excusing themselves from the very passage that we've just been taught that's all-inclusive of humanity, right? And, and I believe that that is one of the reasons why the doctrine of man that is so plain in Scripture is being rewritten often by the church today right and um so i wanna i wanna you know with last couple of weeks we've 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 taken this beautiful up ramp to what god is doing um with those he's snatching off of that wide road and it's just glorious isn't it it just i i it's just glorious the more time i spend in those passages the more they just go like that um, but we kind of came into the end of last week's study with Israel and Israel's redemption. And I know that for many that is a difficult thing because the way the scriptures reveal God's interaction with Israel. But I think what, has, what will help us, and we'll see that this morning, is God's interaction with Israel in particular is generation after generation after generation. And God seems to deal specifically with each generation and certainly as a whole. And I think you'll see that here because what we tend to see in the Gospels is this horrendous condemnation of Israel, the generation at the time of his life. And then we see the continuing condemnation of Israel as a people today. But yet we have these glorious promises and they fill a book by Michael Vlock that big they're beautiful he will reign forever read it if you haven't I know Scott has it It just blesses your soul doesn't it to just see the faithfulness of God so I want to spend a little bit of time looking at Israel in the context of Romans 1 and I think it fits right into with Paul's mindset because in Romans 2 he opens up with but you O man right and he begins to unpack the, the the religious person or the specifically the Jewish person who is excusing themselves from Romans 1 Right? I want you to see this. Um, and, and it is, you know, we think about this tapestry, and we think about the tapestry of God's redemption, but there's another part of that tapestry, and it is God's condemnation, it's God's righteousness and his justice. And we're going to see that very, very, very clearly. Um But it is so important how careful we need to be of our desires. Every one of our desires should be filtered with a biblical understanding of that desire. And this study has has just grabbed and embedded that in me because it is, it is the persistent desire of what is ungodly and unrighteous that is the very reason why God eventually just lets us go to those very desires. So I say again, be careful of what your desires are. When you're evangelizing or you're discipling, teach people to be careful of their desires because their desires flow up out of their mind which flow right out of their heart. And God sees the heart. It's very, very, very important. And we see that when he gives us over, we're given over to idolatry, love of self, immorality, and every kind of unrighteousness to the very people we were called to love one another. Right? You just see that over and over, and that is the pattern of Romans 1 as well. And in many ways, he just simply turns us over to those desires to believe that threefold lie that I can be like God. I can do whatever I want with this body in the violation of the marriage covenant that God ordained from the very beginning. And I can do whatever I want to everybody else as long as I'm happy. You see the absolute darkness of this narcissistic Mindset that we've embedded in just about everybody today. It's all about me. (laughs) Don't you let anybody get in your way. And we see the destruction, particularly in our children and our grandchildren. That this produces. And we see it very plainly in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes, there it is right there, right? 1 John 2, 16. And the pride of life, it's all right there. You can pack it all right in there. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. This world system that we're so often warned about. And what we find when we pursue those, and I'm using we in the In the humanity sense, Uh, we can look to 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Delusion is a function of the mind. Illusion is a function of the eyes. It appears to be, but, you know, I'm not so sure I believe it. Delusion is, no matter how ridiculous it is, or how sinful it is, or how dark it is, I believe it. It's a function of my mind. Remember the study we did on the mind? God turns the mind over. Debased mind. For God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. There it is right there. He just turns them over to believe what they so desire to be true even though every ounce of His word argues against it. And there comes a time when God just says, fine, go live the consequence of your desires. To believe what is false in order that all may be condemned. And here it comes. Who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in that horizontal unrighteousness. Living and treating everybody however we want as long as we're happy and content, right? Is that not the world that we are marked in? I wanted to make a comment about the Scriptures. We know, you know, and we're well taught from the Scriptures that they're foolishness to the unbeliever. But are the Scriptures still not for the unbeliever as much as the believer? Think about that, Right? Our scriptures are not reserved for the church. They're to be unknown and understood and embraced and absorbed and then taught and given to the world. Peter understood that. Look at Peter in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. As they were, as he was talking about the scoffers that are coming. He says in verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. Okay? Now that takes you, this is so right to creation, right to Genesis 1. And the Holy Spirit is simply saying, if you want to see the glory of God, go right back to His creation and just thread it right on through. In creation, everything was good, everything was good, everything was good, and then everything became very good when, when He created man and woman. And he created that unity that is the construct of the marriage covenant that is right embedded in the creation, the foundation. And that's what God is holding dearly through all of this. Romans 1 is that covenant and all the different ways that we adulterate that. for they deliberately, 2 Peter 3, 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged by the word of God. That ancient world And if they were accountable to the word of God, so much so that God wiped the whole world out with a deluge, how much more are we accountable as a humanity living as this world allows? That's my point. We can't do what Israel did and take all the oracles of God and keep it here within the safe comforts of the church. We can't. Deluged with water and perish. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. We see that in the scriptures, don't we? We see that there's, there's a time coming and it seems ever nearer where it is just going to be unleashed in an unfathomable way. And it'll be too late for us to be faithful in those deeds that we saw that make up the garment of the saints in heaven. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly and you can think about the fullness of the Gentiles that Paul talks about, right? There's this fullness that reaches that point when it's time, it's time. Now, to bring us back to Israel, I wanna go back to this extended passage in 1 Corinthians ten six through 11, and I've mentioned it a few times. I think you'll see its familiarity But it just ties right into what we see in Romans one and two so clearly. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 through 11. I'll read from the ESV. Now these things took place as examples for us. So God decreed all that, all of it, as an example for us. Boy, we ought to take heed of that, shouldn't we? (laughs) Because the example we've been given is not pretty at all. Why would he give us an example that is one filled with adultery, filled with idolatry, filled with grumbling? Why would he give us that example? (laughs) Because we're just like them. Examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. There's that desire, right? And here's another little challenge we have today. When we say the word evil, don't we think of Hitler? Don't we think of Dahmer? What's evil in the earliest biblical sense? Simply to do what God has said ought not to be done. Simply. We don't think of evil rightly. And if we do, and when we do, we will find ourselves much more humbled before the Lord every day. Because we fall into evil with the flesh, with the eyes, with the pride every day, don't we? It's what magnifies grace so much more. And if we don't understand this, grace is just an enablement for me to get it done for Jesus, right? And Paul's just getting at that here with this church in Corinth in particular, but us in total, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters. So there goes the vertical sin that we see in Romans 1, the ungodliness and as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we know what that means, play. That is the sexual immorality that Paul is going to warn us about in the very next set of words. We must not indulge in sexual Immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is why Paul is warning us so sternly to take heed to the example of Israel, church, right? We must not put Christ to the test. Ever think about that one? if we're flirting with the flesh and we're flirting with the eyes and we're flirting with pride, are we not testing God? What do we deserve at that very moment? What do we know from Galatians? God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Spoken to everybody, humanity, right? We must not put God, Christ, to the test, which is just the epitome of arrogance, right, when you really think about it, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then comes verse 10, which is, uh, boy, guilty nor grumble. Guilty. Guilty. As some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, which is really, if you look through that, that is just the long arm of the Lord, and all the different means by which He exacts His condemnation, His judgment. It can be an angel. It can be a nation. It can be a leader. He's got, but it is the long arm of the Lord. Verse 11, and he says it again to bookend it. Now, these things have happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And the thought that struck me as I was absorbing that this week is how serious is our responsibility to the Lord? carry these warnings faithfully into the humanity we live. How serious is it? It's serious. That's the warning. So let's take a look at Israel. And let's look first at the long-suffering of God with Israel. 2nd Corinthians I'm sorry 2nd Chronicles 36 verse 15 So listen to this passage listen to this generation of Israel that's part of the point here The Lord the God of their fathers 2nd Chronicles 36:15 sent persistently to them by his messengers why because he had compassion on His people, and on His dwelling place. (laughs) Yeah. Think of the millennial reign. What's at the center of the millennial reign? His dwelling place. Verse 16, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing, At his prophets. Now, does that ring a bell in Jesus' ministry? Does, doesn't it? How many generations later? And they're still doing the same thing. And the example that they have is from their own people. I'll tell you a pretty good little prayer every day for each one of us Lord, just keep me. Just keep me. Dot, dot, dot. When you see this example we've been given, we're headed there, brother. We are, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, That's exactly right. It's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Apart from God's intervening grace in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, we are right here and we are headed the wrong way. That's Romans 1. And he gives us us the history of Israel to make that point. Does that kind of not like strike fear in your heart? Because all he did was turn them over to the persistent desires they would not let go of. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. And look what it says, until there was no remedy. God gave them over. Okay, so there's one generation. And we'll see this abandoning wrath all the way through that. And it'll keep echoing back to 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 11 that we read last week, right? What about Israel? Romans 9 starts. How were you grafted in? Don't be arrogant, he says. Because just as easily as they were cut out, you too can be cut out. The pruning work of the Father in the upper room discourse right you see how it all how central this is now that that, that you're gonna have to stay with me a little bit here um because i got lost in there so i'm sure (laughs) you guys are going to get lost but about six months prior to the cross you'll see in Luke 13 and 14, which we read from last week, if you go read it, you will see Jesus being confronted and you will see a couple of uh, what I would call triggers that launch Jesus into a set of parables that he tells in part in Luke 13 and 14, six months prior to the cross. And then he is provoked again six months later, the Passion Week, and, he, and it provokes him to say these same parables, but he amplifies them with an intensity that just makes it crystal clear what he's saying to those who have eyes to hear or eyes to see and ears to hear so stick with me on that in luke 13 23 one of those triggers coming right on the heels of a first parable of the fig tree and its removal when it says once you've tended it once you've given it time if it does not bear fruit cut it down and this is what he gets and someone said to him Lord, will those who are saved be few? I'm in Luke 13, 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? They're starting to get the picture that Jesus is not appealing to the crowds. He is seeking true disciples, and it is causing the crowds to just leave in droves. How counter to today's church is that? And then he goes, strive to enter. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now listen to this. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They'll be seeking, but will not be able. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we ought to understand why. And I think we will if I keep moving. If not, we'll just take it into next week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. What's he saying to this generation of Israel? That window... It's closing. It's six months from now, and it's closing. This is why he picks these right back up six months later, and he refreshes these same people with the same parables amplified. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin, now look at this, to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open. So now they're on the outside of the door knocking, open, please. They're seeking, they're knocking. Then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. I don't know you at all. You don't know me, you religious person, you seeker, you knocker. I don't know you or where you're from at all. It's fearful, isn't it? Now, I'm going to throw you out to Luke 19. And what we're going to see is Jesus, in, in Luke 13 and 14, you see the fig tree. You see the, a wedding feast. You see a wedding banquet. Jesus is going to pick those right back up in Luke nineteen twenty, Matthew 21. It's all if you look at the harmony of the Gospels or you pick up MacArthur's One Perfect Life. That's where you'll see this pulled together. And when he picks up these parables, the week of his cross, you'll see the difference if you read those prior. We just don't have time. But I want you to look at Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. And we're going to see this abandoning wrath of Romans 1 starting to unfold. Verse 41 says from Luke 19, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, just like he did six months prior. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the heart of our Lord. But what did he say? You were not willing. Your desires were totally, totally separate and distinct from what true faith is. And we're going to see that. He wept over it, just like he did in Luke thirteen thirty four, saying, Would that you, even you, now this is different in that weeping, had known on this day the things that make for peace, not war, peace, if you had just known what I had given you in the scriptures and believed it, you would know the peace and the kingdom would be ushered in. But... Saying, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Remember what he told Nicodemus? You can't even see the kingdom of God where you are from, Nicodemus. When you see that, ask why and trust that the scriptures answer that. For the days, 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies, here comes the destruction of 70 A.D. foretold by Christ. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And if we don't think that the window closes, then we're not taking this passage in properly. what more could christ have done right in that same section you you would read from john 12 39 through 41 therefore they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, that not that mysterious to me to, to realize that is our Lord who as Tina and I were talking the other morning has the divine prerogative to empty himself but yet knows the entire history of humanity backwards and forwards and every heart that he's encountering. So this is like present for him. All this historical perspective, all of the messengers that he sent, that they killed, this is as he was with Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's personal. And he's speaking from that with this generation again. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Hmm. And we can see right there, God is giving them over. We want to make that connection. Now, in Matthew 21, this is where these parables come back into play, okay? And just look at the way that Jesus unpacks this in Matthew 21, verse 33 from the ESV. Here, another parable. He's just, it's rapid fire to these guys, right? Jesus is just... Unloading truth in the form of parables to those who can hear, but th- they're very pointed, as you will see. I want you to think about the wedding feast in in Revelation 19 that we talked about last week. That beautiful gathering, because it's 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 invoked in a lot of these parables that he's now telling the week of his cross. He says in verse. 33 of Matthew 21. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. You see the picture, Israel? You see the fence around it that gets removed and they're turned over to their desires? And the enemies of the world just crush them. It's fearful. Leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, the time is now, Israel, for you to show your fruit. He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his service and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. There they are. There's the messenger that Jesus intimately sent to his people Israel over the course of time. And here's where it he just gets searing. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now remember, these people have been plotting to kill Jesus for a long time now, and now it's right there. It is right there. And their desire to kill him is so intense that they can't even hardly contain themselves. Their desire to wipe him off the face of the earth. And he's saying this directly to him. Go ahead, James. That's the point. And if it weren't for God, thanks be to God. That's, that's, that's the simple place this should invoke for every believer that understands what God has done to yank us off of that wide road, that downward slide. Hmm. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, just be a mom or a dad for a minute. Be a father. Think about your children. Think about the heavenly father and his beloved son. And this is his son speaking this parable and you know exactly what he's talking about. The intimacy of the Father and the Son, and the greatest gift that humanity could ever have. Now, I want you to think about the bottom of Romans 1 when we do the most wicked of things to our fellow humanity. And you're seeing it right here. Jesus birth, right? Like, no. How surreal! That's what I, just be part of the audience when he's saying these things as you're reading scriptures. It just, just look and think that this is that son. They will respect my son. What a hopeful thought. And thankfully we know some will, <laughs> right? But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is amazing. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. When you read about Satan, what's his great desire? To usurp the throne of Christ. Where does these desires that are ungodly come from? Straight from the pit of hell and Satan. Mm. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see the motif that's coming in about a week? When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits. In their seasons. And here we come. Here we come. The church. Right on the heels of that, and I would imagine he's got the attention of his audience in Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Sound familiar? And sent his servants to call those who were invited. Remember the three stages of the ancient wedding. First the invitation that there's a time when the son will marry his bride. And then there's the time that it's time to come to the feast. And then it's time for the wedding. This is the invitation. This is the call of Israel. The same call we get. Right? Those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not Come. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. Yeah, don't, don't buy all that lean meat thing. Have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But... They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, one to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, same ending, and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy can you imagine what his eyes must have looked like at that very moment as he scanned that group of people and he could go from one to the other who would play a pivotal role in his murder verse 9 go therefore to the main roads we can say thanks be to god because this is romans 11 you were grafted in. It's not that you deserved. not that anything was special. You weren't even in the plan, in the purview. They forsake it, and you are the undeserving beneficiaries of their forsaking. And by the way, your responsibility, church, is to make that Israel of that future generation jealous of your love for the Lord that they have forsaken. Go, therefore, to the main roads, verse 9, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Thanks be to God. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Enjoy that wedding feast, brothers and sisters. It's coming. Now, Coming out of a works-based religion, this is so important because Jesus continues. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, and here we begin to realize this is still a parable, it's not a prophecy, he saw there was there a man who had no wedding Garment Do you know what the wedding garment is? Do you know what the condemnation is upon these people? Self-righteousness Naked before God The garment here is Christ's righteousness And this man did not have it. He was pretending. And this is frightful to me. This was 43 years of my life. There was a man who had no wedding garment, religious as can be, but no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, stunned. Just like those who said, depart from me, I never knew you. He, was, he thought he was good with his religion. He's speaking to Israel, and he's speaking to anyone who is relying upon their own righteousness. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And look at how Jesus brings you right back to the question that provoked from Luke 13 when he told the first versions of these parables. Remember what it was? Lord, are there few who are saved? Six months later... Jesus closes this parable with verse fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Book ends, and that's where they are. We see the immorality. We see the idolatry. We see the immorality of Israel. And then we see the horrendous behavior at the bottom of Romans 1, that they would be so arrogant and blinded that they would crucify their Savior, the cradle that preserved them over their entire existence. And are they done? Is God done with them? Let's just look upon the wondrous mercy of God and how faithful He is to His promises. And then just put your hand on it and hang on to it. Go with me to Isaiah 25. I think, Scott, of that big, big, fat book, this was one of my favorite sections. I want you to pay attention to how literal this description is. This is not God just wasting ink. This is him telling literally what is yet to come for Israel, which Paul picks up in Romans 9, 10, and 11 after he condemns them in Romans 2. <laughs> so the bookends of the theology section are almost beginning and ending with Israel the example for us. In Isaiah 25, 6-9, we'll end here. The Lord of hosts, here it comes again. This is why Israel should have understood those parables and the language associated with them so, so well. The Lord of hosts will prepare what? A lavish banquet for all peoples. On this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, as a functioning alcoholic who hasn't drank alcohol for 17 years now, that one kind of goes, but it just tells you that everything is pure with God. We adulterate everything in one way or another. <laughs> a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged Wine. Listen not how literal that is. And on this mountain, he says again, he will swallow up, remember 1 Corinthians 15, the central message of that? He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What is it? He will swallow up death for all time. Right out of the passages we read last week but several hundred years prior than those words were penned. And the Lord God will, here it comes, wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, and I believe that the redeemed Israel will be loudest of all. Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom.